when did it feel like you failed? Oh my God. Uh, I think I always have that feeling because I always feel I did not meet my own expectation of myself. So that, uh, that's a kind of like not satisfied. This is a strong feeling kind of grow together with me along all my journey. Hey everyone, it's Sarah. This week, I'm so excited to dive deep with Lu Zhang, founder and managing partner of Fusion Fund, a renowned Silicon Valley-based investor and serial entrepreneur. During her grad studies in material science and engineering at Stanford, Zhang commercialized technology utilizing thin film sensors for highly sensitive diabetes detection. She successfully sold her company, Acetone Inc., to one of the largest medical device companies in the U.S. Now, after building a successful angel investment portfolio with the money she had, with several large M&A and IPO exits by the way, she then started Fusion Fund to continue supporting technical founders, many of which come from immigrant and diverse backgrounds just like her. So in her 30s, she's built and sold a company and most recently announced the launch of Fund3 with $120 million in committed capital. This conversation ranges from how Lou still feels like a failure every day, how you can make being different your unique advantage, and her thoughts on the future of deep tech. You don't want to miss this. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. So tell me a little bit about, you know, Lou and, and frame up a little bit of context about who Lou is and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, yeah. Happy to Sarah. So. I grew up actually in a place called Inner Mongolian. So it's not a big city. It's a beautiful places, but not super modernized. So there's no entrepreneurship or startup concept there. So I grew up there and came to United States in 2010 for graduate school. I went to Stanford. So this is my initial journey, you know, came here as an international student and also started my journey here as a very nerdy material science uh, engineer uh, in Stanford. While I was doing my research, uh, that's when I figured out, okay, there are so many things we can do, leverage technology, and including using technology to build a commercialized uh, company. So that's my first uh, transition from a material science researcher to a entrepreneur. So I was 20, 21 years old, like uh, super young and naive, know very little about entrepreneurship. Yeah. So Lou, you know, I, I want to uh, go a little bit, you know, deeper into this, right? How does someone who grew up in Inner Mongolia, who, who didn't really understand entrepreneurship and things like that, how do you end up thinking material science is your path to success and, and why Stanford? Yeah. So uh, for material science, uh, there's an interesting story that when I was a little, I remember I read a book and the cover page is a universe elevator. So the elevator connecting the Earth and the Moon. It's kind of science fiction, but they were talking about if we have the strongest material in the world, 
like carbon nanotube. In theory, it will be the strongest material in the whole world. We could build that such an elevator. So that's become almost like a small seed planting my heart. I'm like, okay, I want to do something as great as that. And how could I contribute? That's the reason eventually pushed me to make the decision to choose material science as a major. And for Stanford, it's also, you know, typical application process for graduate school. I, of course, choose all the Ivy League and apply for them. I only probably applied for two schools in the West Coast. And after I got a different, I got a lot of uh, exceptional admission and also scholarship, I was choosing between East and West. I was really simply thinking about, oh, West Coast, California has better weather. Let's go with Stanford instead of Harvard or MIT. But later I really realized, oh my God, I make the best decision in my life. Because not only the weather, the ecosystem, the culture here really suit me so well. I just uh, resonate very well with my original culture, my personality, and also the thing I wanted to do. So I have to say, sometimes I people think, oh, you make all the right decisions in different stage of life. But on the other side, sometimes it's not by plan. It's really came from who I am and uh, who I am, what I wanted to do, and uh, also a little bit luck. I think being lucky is also another good superpower to have. Yeah, yeah. And and from material science, I mean, the good news, bad news is we actually are seeing more and more material scientists uh, that end up in the world of venture. But in between, of course, you, you had a startup and sold it. Tell us a little bit about that chapter. Were you doing this while you were in Stanford? Yes, yes. Because as I mentioned, I know nothing about entrepreneurship. And Stanford have different classes, especially for engineering school students, to think about the possibility of commercial application of your patent technology. Eventually, still 90% of the patent technology in the lab, in the lab never got a chance to leave the lab. So uh, I went through that program, and uh, I was picked at the top one in the group, and uh, also connected with some VC. They're like, oh, that's a great technology. Have you think about making a real company? I'm like, sure, why not? I think that's a part of my personality. You could call it simple and naive being too young, but on the other side, also pretty bold. I don't really care about whether it's the choice most of people will choose. As long as I found it super exciting and passion and could drive impact and I'm working on the technology I love, I will do it. To be honest, I also did not realize how hard it is. <laughs> when I started as a solo founder, as I said, I was still doing my research at Stanford and in parallel, oh my God, I have really no life. I feel grateful if I found time to eat to have dinner around, like the only meal around 8 p.m., 9 p.m. I still remember the restaurant owner she still recognized me because she also saw me, okay, this is a girl, very young girl came in at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., and all the bunch of food to eat by herself seemed pretty happy. Sounds, look pretty weird, right? Initially, she was always checking on me, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm totally fine. Thank you for still open with great food. So that's how busy I was. Not to mention no time for social, no time for sleep, no party, no travel, nothing at all. And I even don't have time to think about how miserable my life was because it's just so busy. Every day, there's so many different yeah. things I need to work on. And also, it's all about, you know, sometimes uh, getting people supporting me. But most of the time, lots of people give me challenges, discrimination, everything. I also need to prepare myself the following day to be ready, continue my journey. Tell us a little bit about this, you know, chapter with acetone, right? What what drove you to really focus on this problem with diabetes? And, and actually, you know, what how did that journey unfold to you selling to uh, Boston Scientific? Yeah, so first, uh, I feel very passionate about healthcare innovation. You know, even till now, when I'm running my firm, Fusion Fund, when I started in 2015, I continue passionately within healthcare. Because I truly believe, you know, what we do, no matter as entrepreneur, investor, could really achieve, change the world, create a fortune, but most important, to change the world. 
and for healthcare, it's really perfect combination. And meanwhile, look at the type 2 diabetes. It's a huge problem across the whole world. It's not only in the United States. If we could do diagnostic early on, it actually have much higher chances for people to reverse the process, to be back to normal, and instead of taking insulin for the rest of their life. So there's lots of huge impact this technology drive, and also my technology was quite unique as a, the only non-invasive clinical approach but in the time. So I found, okay, perfect match and work on it. But meanwhile, the challenge part is really how to understand the ecosystem within healthcare in the United States, which is brand new for me. So I really learned from scratch. I definitely had good advisor, mentors, school support. My advisor, uh, my research advisor, the, uh, the, the Dean of Engineering School, Professor Jim Palmer, was very supportive as well. But meanwhile, also, I made lots of mistakes, and I tried to quickly learn from the mistakes and grow from them. Yeah, and can you tell us a little bit about that technology? You said it's the first uh, non-invasive technology to, to approach this problem. How did you, I mean, you know, this is really un unraveling it in, in the way that perhaps uh, you may not have really thought through about, but how did you even decide to narrow down on this problem? I mean, you talk about being passionate about healthcare. Uh, well, healthcare is pretty broad. There are different areas, different angles that you could attack uh, the different problems. How did you choose on this one and focus all your time and live that quote unquote miserable life, right? To, to solve this one problem. Yeah, it's really about the, the matching between the technology I have and also the market opportunity. And from the market opportunity side, you know, market size is big enough. It's a painful enough problem. And meanwhile, no other better solution. And uh, meanwhile, go back to the technology. You know, there's lots of technology owners, including the school or in the technical founder community that people have technology, but could not find the correlation with uh, the, the best application to show the capability of the tech. But for me, I was very lucky to find this uh, perfect application to show the capability of my tech. So my technology was uh, actually a bio, bio sensor, biomedical sensor. And uh, the sensing capability is only applied to react with a PPM level asymptote. It's very technical, but the PPM level means very, very, very low density and concentration. And initially, I'm thinking, okay, maybe we could use it for industry, you know, asymptote leaking, leakage uh, application. And later we found, okay, the sensor is too sensitive. It's PPM level. And uh, it's more like medical level uh, sensitive uh, uh, capability. And then we find, I found out this uh, really good market opportunities within uh, type 2 diabetes. And the, the one of the byproduct of the type 2 diabetes patient is really asymptote. So there's a, definitely three or four different steps for me to connecting the dots. I think that's also later on when I start to do investment, I talk to technical founder, even the research researcher in the university. I tell them that sometimes the, app, the best application is not that straightforward. You also need to learn the industry a little bit more to understand how to connect both sides to make the best use case. Because lots of technology are being used in the wrong application and did not show the uh, capability, and then people think, okay, it's not a good one to move forward. So yeah, lots of things came together, but you know, the process of figuring it out, it takes a while. It's not like a couple of minutes I figured it out. It takes months for me to try different application, different direction, eventually choose this one as the best one. Right. And how did that exit come about? I mean, you know, it's uh, rare, maybe not so rare in, in the Valley, but it's rare that uh, an exit comes so early, right? You were in your 20s at that time from a big 
public listed company. How did that come about? Was that something that you had set up that you strategized or did you have good advisors who were connected? Yeah, I definitely have good advisor and good investor. Uh, initially, the introduction was done by one of my major investors. He is a very famous healthcare investor and also a professor at the Biodesign Program at Stanford. And meanwhile, he also had at least, I think, seven company access in the acquisition and IPO. Very successful serial entrepreneur as well. So he made an initial introduction and they were talking about potential partnership. And later on, they are so interested in my technology and the offer. And I was also thinking about how I could quickly put this technology into a bigger platform to make it happen and also make it more powerful. I figured, okay, selling to the large uh, medical device company, especially within this industry back in the day, be honest with you, it was also not easy to raise a, more capital in the growth stage to grow the company myself. So I decided to take the offer and sell it. It was three and a half years, the whole period I ran in my company. But if you ask me now, actually, I really regret I sell it too early. Uh, <laughs> but on the other side, uh, consider the ecosystem situation back in the days. To be honest with you, very few VC like to invest in healthcare. Very few VC even understand healthcare tech. And meanwhile, in terms of the market momentum back in 2013, 2014, it's all about consumer business model innovation. It's just the starting point of deep tech and healthcare. So I would say I was a little bit too early. So I uh, tried to really conquer lots of challenges and difficulties myself and uh, made the decision to sell the company. But now we want to support a founder within the healthcare sector that they don't need to sell too early. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because uh, one of my first few episodes I may have shared that with you was with Rana El-Kaliubi, who yeah. had Affectiva, right, and, and really talked about how she spent so much of her time on this startup on emotional AI. Um, and even that exit was like an effort to actually decouple her identity from her startup. Did you feel any of that? I mean, it's interesting that you say it was really hard, um, you know. What were your thoughts at that time in terms of like, what next for Lutang? Yeah, you know, every founder feels like the company is like their baby. And for me, especially, I was a solo founder. I also kind of had, had a very challenging time of bringing everything together, learned so much during my process of launch a company. Eventually, it was a great success, but there's so much learning and so much growth. So I have such a strong emotion and affiliation with my company. So it's a hard decision. Even, you know, I own 72% of my company when I sold it. So it was a great financial return for myself. Still, you know, I really feel like I sell my baby and, you know, run another baby. Yeah, but on the other side, at the time, I was really thinking about, okay, if I sold my company, I have many other technology, my patent technology I could work on and potentially make it my next company. So I could become really a serial entrepreneur for a different opportunity. Of course, it did not become, it was the plan, but it didn't happen as a plan. But uh, I still feel like looking back, uh, I still feel I made a joy choice, sold it, and start to do something I'm doing right now, like as a fusion founder, we could support more founder like me many years ago to make them more successful. Yeah, I know you, you talk about the different challenges. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what, I guess, your top takeaway from your time in building and scaling your company to that point. Like, what was a mistake that you think you made or a lesson that you took away from that chapter? Yeah, I think probably the one thing I want to go back to tell tell the younger Lou uh, back in the days, it's really first and never take it personal because there are, there are so many people say no to me. Uh, I cannot uncheck all the bugs like 
20, 21 years old, female minority immigrant founder working on healthcare. <laughs> so I check a lot of box and people say no to me for different reasons. And uh, I kind of took it personally for some time and also gave me lots of uh, pressure and uh, frustration. But later I look back, you know, there's a different reason. And uh, if I did not take it personally, which I did it later, I could really learn from it and also even convert people from people saying no to me, become my partner, which happened to several of my later stage investors. Uh, so I really, that's the thing I want to tell uh, tell the younger Luke. Another thing is really uh, be a little bit more patient. I don't know whether that's the same thing other young entrepreneurs feel when they're working on their company. When I was younger, I also actually feel more sense of urgency. It feels like, okay, I need to drive this right now, make it happen right now. But sometimes uh, take some time to learn and to grow and also to be able to understand the long-term vision, what I want to achieve in the next uh, five, 10 years would really help myself make a better decision. The good thing is I realized also a little bit later when I was running my company and also eventually really helped me uh, make the right decision. Yeah. So then you go into becoming, I, I mean, I've heard you say this, I used to hate the VCs, right? And then you became one. How yeah. did that chapter happen? I mean, you were with Phoenix and then after that you had New Gen, which evolved into Fusion. Talk to us a little bit about that investor journey. Yeah, so so after I sold my company, I started to do personal investment. Uh, my motivation was really, okay, these are a bunch of great, no matter it's a deep tech, a healthcare founder or immigrant founder that they had a harder time to raise money. Why not? I supported them. So I did not think, I did not think myself as a, VC when I was supporting other founders with my own money. I'm just uh, helping them. And I invested around 13 companies. Now we have now I have a four merge four IPO and the five merge acquisition. So back look back in the days, I really made the right decision in the right time in supporting the good growth of a founder because deep tech and healthcare are growing since twenty fifteen and immigrant mm-hmm. founders are rising right now in this ecosystem. And after I did like a certain portfolio myself, that's also when I got approached by a different VC firm, the one you mentioned, and also other family offices, they've been kind of talking with me saying, oh, have you think about doing a VC firm yourself? Have you think about working in the larger VC? So after I experienced that for half a year, I was also thinking about what I wanted to do next. My original plan was to launch another company. I have another patent technology, the OLED technology related to my material science background. It's a huge market opportunity. I was thinking about maybe make a company based on the OLED. But later I really found, okay, industry infrastructure, everything. And meanwhile, while I was doing investment, supporting other founder, I found out, oh, not only is it really fun thing to do, I'm good at it. And also I'm passionate about it. And meanwhile, you know, I have some special advantages. Very few investors have the deep technical healthcare background. Very few investors really understand the early stage life cycle of a such startup. Not to mention, I know a bunch of a great repeating successful founder within the field, and they like to work with me. They all joke about, oh, Lou, you're going to go to the dark side. You're going to sound like a shark now. I'm like, no, necessary shark. I could be a smart dolphin in the dark side to help you. So fast forward in 2015. Also, there's a family office they supported me. So I have a relatively easier start compared with other early stage, uh, first time uh, GP emerging manager that uh, there's money ready. I put in my own money. So it's a small fund established in 2015. We start with the name New Gen Capital because it means I want to invest in next generation uh, leaders. And later we found lots of uh, similar names. There's uh, some confusion with different type of uh, 
uh, companies and uh, other financial firms. So quickly we rebranded to Fusion Fund. And Fusion is now from Fusion Food. <laughs> it's actually from Nuclear Fusion. You could tell how nerdy we are. And that, that's the end goal for anyone working on material science and the energy, but it will take probably 20, 30 years to achieve. So I choose the name Fusion Fund and it's in 2017 official use that brand uh, to go from there. So it's been a seven years journey now. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about that journey. I mean, in building a fund, right? What does that take? I mean, you were lucky, right? But of course, you put yourself in that position of luck to be able to have that exit and execute in the way that you did. But many emerging managers, many that actually tune in that, you know, we work with and beyond the billion um, yeah. are struggling with fundraising. And, and many of them uh, didn't expect, right? I think the common theme that we, we talked about previously was the fact that it takes a fund manager a lot longer than they expect, and it's a lot harder than they expect. What what were some of your you know takeaways there in how you decided to build your firm? Yes, so uh, so for me, you know, on one side, yes, I think being lucky is important, but on the other side, I think the more hardworking you are, the more luckier you are. <clears throat> I think what I just one thing for me is I really capture different opportunity, work very hard be able to expose myself and a different opportunity, knowing the right people. Then I could learn, like I could learn and choose the best one, fits best for me. And for uh, starting a new fund, I think couple kind of suggestion, or maybe the, uh, the, the experience I had by launching the first one is really once you have a strong differentiation, it's much easier to raise money from the LP, even for the first time. Because for lots of the investor, what they're looking for Yes, they want manager with better performance, but when you just get started, you have no tech record. So how to position your differentiation is very important. And for me, I think first that my differentiations really came from who I am, like my background, my past experience, my focus on deep tech and healthcare. To be honest with you, choosing deep tech and healthcare as a major focus back in 2015 was not an easy decision. While most of other VC are now doing that, you are being one of the few doing certain choosing certain direction to invest and meanwhile need to have a comprehensive investment methodology to support it. That's come to the second point I want to suggest to the young manager is need to have a consistent investment methodology. Especially when you don't have lots of track record. Strong methodology with the logic will make it much easier to persuade investor and LP trust you and understand and align their interests with you. And meanwhile, you know, not, not like you could raise money from everyone. There'll always be capital that's good fit with you, capital that's not good fit with you. But when you have clear methodology, you could quickly make that filtering. Like people thought, oh, this is your approach. This is how you look at company industry opportunity. Good fit for us, move forward. Not a good fit. Okay, we just pass from here. So uh, I think that's the part. If you build it from the beginning, it will make the full-on conversation much easier. Um, and also the last is really... Uh, Start to build up community. I know I start as a solo. I'm, I'm still a solo fund manager, funding manager when I start Fusion Fund, another journey as a solo founder. Initially, when I started the first years, yes, I was by myself. But even I was by myself in terms of the whole team. I already started to build up different ecosystems. I have a group of uh, executives uh, who kind of were close with me as a personal friends, and I use them as an advisor group. I also have a group of uh, repeating successful founders become my initial founder pool and high quality one. They will accept my investment and support me. And meanwhile, both groups give me future candidates for my future partners. 
like now my team, I have 12 people and I'm the only founding managing partner. I have another three partner work with me. And one of the partner came from that executive group community I initially built up. Another partner came from that repeating successful founder group I initially built up. So eventually it's not only just of helping contributing to my investment side, picking the right founder. It's also helping me build a better team in the future. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, absolutely love that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, what you said there is basically your, it's law of attraction, right? Putting the right message so that the right yeah. people come to you and, and that will filter out in itself, being specific with, with what you want to do in this world uh, and then building the community. Absolutely love that. Now, you know, as, as you talked about healthcare and deep tech becoming an area that you continue to be passionate about, uh, and you mentioned this a little bit, right? That the last decade of innovation was very much focused on business model innovation direct to consumer in some way, a lot of focus on that, but that in the next decade, your thesis is that core technology is where yes. the investments and the future would be. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Give us a flavor of the kind of investments that you're excited about and, and the innovation you're seeing in the space. Yeah. So if you ask me to just uh, summarize of a uh, different vertical I'm investing on, the key message is really digital transformation. I think the next five, 10 years, the key thing is how we really implement all this uh, digital platform and apply AI and leverage the value of the data into all different type of industry. You know, that's the part that feels super exciting. And in the past two years, we're so busy investing in new company because it's booming. The digital transformation has happened across all industry. Start with healthcare, the one we just uh, discussed, my, one of my biggest passions. And uh, across our human society, you know, more than 30% of uh, the data we create so far are healthcare related. So when we talk about we want to optimize the applying AI, we want to really uh, show the full capability of AI. AI needs data. AI needs high quality, concentrated, easy to label data, which industry has it. It's healthcare. And meanwhile, we look at healthcare. What is the future for healthcare? No matter you talk about diagnostic and uh, therapeutics, talk about life science, biology, it's all about how to do better personalization, improve the efficiency, and uh, digital platform to provide it. So for us within healthcare, now we invest so many digital platforms providing personalized diagnostic for cancer, heart disease, mental disease. Same thing for a digital therapeutics platform. And meanwhile, digital life science, because when we talk about sequencing, genetic, Essentially, it's also a piece of data. And the last thing is digital biology. Uh, lots of people know about uh, the, the contribution done by AlphaFold of DeepMind a couple months ago. Now we have this free database with over 200 million of uh, protein folding structure available for free for everyone, especially for people in the digital biology. It's a huge, huge improvement, a huge, huge acceleration. So that's super exciting. So that's kind of the future of the general healthcare within the digital application. And meanwhile, if you look at the healthcare industry in general, we always have this AAA problem, accessibility, affordable, and accuracy. 
and how to solve the AAA problem, applying AI and make it digital and uh, apply AI using it to improve the efficiency. So that's the healthcare side. But for other industry, same situation, you know, how we really improve the efficiency by push for digital transformation. Definitely on the data side, there's lots of vertical AI application. But meanwhile, on the hardware side, uh, for example, there's a new sensing technology, sensor, flexible electronics, make it possible for us to continue subtracting data with low power consumption. That's the data entrance. And the second stage is data transfer. We invest a lot in edge computing, next generation cloud infrastructure, data privacy, really enable the traditional sector who does not have a huge comp computing power on the cloud, we could still enable the edge uh, device to have computing power. And we're seeing in the past two years, not only just the tech industry, logistic, manufacturing, insurance, pharmaceutical, life science, and also uh, chemical industry, all this traditional sector, food industry, are adopting digital transformation solution. Yeah, that's the future. Yeah, so a lot that's going on there. And of course, it sounds like a lot of, uh, you know, without going too much into depth here, because we don't have the time for it, but a lot of R&D expenses required, right, to, to be able to get these technologies to scale. And, and you're investing um, early stages of, of these technologies. Can you share with us just a little bit on your thoughts as we, you know, in terms of the moment that we're in, right, we, we're still in the pandemic. Um, we've seen what the pandemic means and how important healthcare is as a part of that. So, of course, it's advanced uh, digital transformation uh, to, to a positive state. But at the same time, we're also being faced with a recession that's coming up. Uh, how are you thinking about all these in, in light of, you know, the kind of expense that's required to be able to bring these technologies to scale? You know, that's also another thing people probably uh, did not realize uh, because of push of uh, COVID that all this digital transformation is happening already. The R&D period was then. Like technology not only was mature, also better, faster, cheaper, make it happen. I have this network called the CXO Network. Uh, we have 42 CTO from Global One Southern Company working closely with us. And uh, the president is my partner, Shane, the former CTO of HP. So I heard from him, heard from other CEO or CTO from this uh, Fortune 500 manufacturing company. They told me they thought the digital transformation won't happen until 2030 for their traditional manufacturing factories. It's happened in the past two years because they have to. There are lots of factories that have our dark and cold. So, you know, it's happening already. And uh, we're, we're not at a stage that I need to invest a lot of R&D. Now it's more about how to enable the founder have the right mindset to, the to do the integration of the technology. And meanwhile, how to really give them good suggestion to find out the best application use case across different industries. Definitely, you're right. You know, we're in a, really the economy cycle in kind of a downturn. But if you look at the history, it's very interesting. The technology innovation cycle is always the opposite of the economy cycle because now is really the time push all the industry realize it's not nice to have. It's must to have to integrate with technology. All the industry are facing the same issue, lack of labor, low efficiency, low margin, higher cost. What is the solution for that? No other alternative, tech integration, especially for the first one, lack of labor. So I think this general mindset shifting happening is happening right now. And meanwhile, provide a huge market opportunity for the founder focus on that area. Even when we look at the market this year, yes, company market had a terrible performance and also impact the performance in the private sector 
available capital in the market much less and much harder for founder to raise money. But if you talk to founder this year who actually have a solid technology and a business model, the sales cycle, the conversation with the end customer is much more smooth compared with a couple of years ago. Yeah. And, and how are you thinking about that as an investor? You know, I have conversations with uh, GPs and LPs all day, every day. And, and the conversation ranges from being fearful, but being optimistic at the same time. Where do you sit on the fence? And are you going to continue to deploy aggressively? Are you seeing great founders uh, that are ready for the next stage despite the recession or because of it? Actually, because of it. You know, last year, this year, we're very busy. We kind of expanding the team. As you mentioned, early this year in January, I did a new fund, $120 million fresh capital dry powder to deploy. So we're actually deploying. Definitely, we're always looking at the foundation of the business. It's not about whether you're able to raise money. It's about whether you have capability to create something people, industry really need and they're willing to pay for it, have some early market validation. We also empower the fund with our CXO network. They could directly talk with the industry leader, CTO from Global 1000 company to implement their solution to have some validation. But meanwhile, if you look at the quality of the founder, yes, the total number of the startup, uh, startup company is lower. But if you look at the quality of the founder, it's actually much higher. Because in this market environment, only founders have strong conviction on their tech and also business opportunity. They will start a new company. Meanwhile, because of the reset of the market valuation, both founder and investor have a more reasonable, I think it's more reasonable expectation of the multiple of the valuation and also think about the long term. So look at the valuation we invested this year, very reasonable. Look at the quality of founder. Last year, this year total, we have over 60% of the founder we invested are actually serious successful entrepreneurs. They did. They had financial freedom from the previous uh, success and they've been waiting, waiting to last year, this year. They found the market timings here. They start a new business. So uh, I'm probably a little bit different from other GPs that, oh, we're pausing, we're not investing. Maybe also because the sector we're focusing are benefiting from this uh, market situation. But in, essentially, we're very busy. We're going to continue to be busy and we're ready to continue to deploy capital to early stage funders. So if any of you are watching this show, come to talk to us. Come to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, I guess, giving the message out there, right? Founders that you work with that have been successful, what what do you find uh, were qualities that really set them apart beyond, of course, you know, the technology? Yeah, yeah. So first, uh, definitely uh, it's super insightful and a big vision. That, that's a key thing, right? Have a comprehensive insight and unique insight about the industry would help this founder to make long-term strategy and decision much, much better. So that's the first thing. And second thing, you know, Sometimes not necessarily the smartest the founder will be eventually successful. It's really the founder who are super persistent and really just hang on there. Any good company, any company you saw in the market, they always go through either one or two or even several downturn. And some people give up. Some people keep going. Some people make it happen. The one who make it happen eventually could be successful. And then the last thing is really be adaptive. I think it's also not necessarily a new thing, but it's just think about what we're looking at in the near future. We look at 2010 to 2017, yes, that's the time. Lots of things are, are predictable. You know how markets go in, who is the investor. But after experience what we had in the past couple of years, everyone think about, oh my God, there's so many new things, surprises. And now it's like, is uncertainty become a new normal? That's actually the, uh, the slogan I put on my WhatsApp since 2018. I feel like, okay, uncertainty is going to be the new normal. And it is. And how you could quickly adapt to the new environment and be able to quickly adjust your strategy will make this company survive 
but the survival will be the ultimate winner. This is the great opportunity came along with this crisis mode. It's the first half of the game. It's a surviving game. Founder need to understand how to survive through the cash flow runway fundraising environment. The second half, whoever survive will take over the market much, much faster and become major player much faster because obviously much less competitor, more concentrated resources and capital, and also very, very well educated customer base. So I think that's really the thing where we're looking at. And the last thing is really capability to choose the right partner. To be honest, the 80% of the company failed because of the reason related to people, either founding, co-founding, co-founder issue, internal conflict, or maybe choose the bad or wrong investor and choose the wrong board member. And all this the internal conflict and the mistake uh, ruin the future of the company. So whether founder have the right mindset to think about long-term gain, choosing the right investor and partner, co-founding member, and also board member at the beginning. The last point you mentioned is is a point that um, has come up actually a lot in, in these conversations, because like you said, um, it may actually be higher than 80% in terms of uh, failure rate, right? And and caused by uh, partnership issues, co-founding, so on and so forth. Uh, and you chose to be a solo founder, perhaps, and for, for some of that reason in which it's simpler. What have you seen to be the best way to approach this? I mean, when you look at founders that have picked the right partners, how did they, what was the mindset that they had around this? I think first is really fun to have a clear self-awareness. First, that they know what uh, they're good at, what they want to do, passion and good at doing, and meanwhile, knowing which type of support they need. If they don't have clear self-awareness, especially when people have strong ego, they think I could do a lot of things, this or that, they will find wrong partner. So I think that's the first important uh, criteria for founder be able to find the right partner. Second is really find the people they trust which means that you can now just uh, interview someone and uh, talk for two weeks and quickly get together because the, the long journey <clears throat> really requires lots of fundamental trust. Uh, there are always the time, no matter it's uh, co-founders or even with your investor or board member, you disagree with each other. Eventually, you cannot just pause their not making decision because of disagreement. You have to make a decision. And sometimes someone needs to compromise. That compromise needs to based on, I trust you as an individual then we could make quicker decision and move forward from there. And later, if it turns out to be right around decision, we could also, based on that, I'll learn from it and then grow from there. So I think that's the second thing. And also another thing, the last one is really looking at the long-term, long-term growth of individual and also the, the company. It's really go back to when the founder choosing the investor and also the board member, whether this is an investor gonna help you to grow instead of uh, just give you the highest valuation. I think that the simple mistake a founder could make at the early stage fundraising is really they just go with the one who offer the highest price. But uh, that's an illusion. Valuation is not really the value of a company. Uh, that's an illusion until you really have a solid foundation, revenue, business model, market validation build up. And uh, you should choose, founders should choose the investor really based on whether have a strong alignment on the vision, related, industry technical background, understand the life cycle could be a valuable, you know, board member investor giving suggestion to a founder. And the last uh, are willing to offer help, offer connection, offer resources, and also have time spent to support a founder. Early stage founder need close partner to help them because this is a very tough journey. Purely money, that's not the best early stage venture. That's also not the true meaning of uh, 
venture, VC capital. VC capital is not always not only the money. It's the money plus the value plus the connection plus the resource. Right, all about value creation. Love it. Well, Lou, we've come to uh, we, we've talked a lot, covered a lot of ground here, and now it's time for our billion dollar questions, which is quick rapid fire questions. Uh, so no context, just the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready for it? <laughs> okay, money or power? Power. Fame or fortune? Uh, fortune. When did it feel like you failed? Oh, uh, you mean? Failure or? Failure, yes. Oh my God. Uh, I think I always have that feeling because I always feel I did not meet my own expectation of myself. So that, uh, that's a kind of like not satisfied. This is a strong feeling kind of grow together with me along on my journey. When did you feel that you were genuinely about to give up? Yeah, actually never. I, I'm, I'm very persistent and also, you know, uh, as a Mongolian, the personality is really when people challenge me, I feel exciting to put them around. I'm gonna be ready to fight a battle. Okay, love that. Something fun now. What are you watching on a streaming service? Netflix, Hulu, whatever you're watching? I watch a lot of documentary. One in particular? Recently, recently I really don't have time. Oh, the recently I watched this, uh, not documentary, it's a very interesting uh, Netflix show called Inventing Anna. <laughs> I love that, Anna. I love that. I'm sure we have thoughts about that, right? Now reading, what are you reading? Are you reading anything or listening to some a book? Uh, you know, a book I highly recommend called Algorithm to Live By. Algorithm to Live By. You know, people always think about, okay, we use algorithm to optimize the program and the work, but uh, if we use the logic and mindset of algorithms to think about how to arrange our time in the real life, maybe more efficient. That's a very interesting book. Love that. Uh, and this is a longer question um but what next for lu zhang i mean you've done a lot in your short period in a short period of time you've built a company exited it now you've got you're on to fund three uh so have a lot of assets under management already what, what next you know i don't feel i build a lot in the short period of time i still feel sense of urgency that we could grow faster and do more and what next you know for fusion fund i'm very key from the day one when i started i want fusion to be the top vc firm in silicon valley now we're doing great in the early stage we want to quickly expand it to present it to a different stage as well, be able to support a founder along their life cycle, not only early stage, but growth stage and later. And also for myself, besides Fusion, you know, I also engage with several nonprofits as a board member, really empower certain things I feel passionate about. The first thing is female leadership, how we put more female leaders into the boardroom. We have the change top down for public company, private company have more female leaders joining the first time as a board member. That's one thing I've been spending lots of time on. Another thing is really supporting the young entrepreneur and the immigrant entrepreneur and also female entrepreneur involved with several nonprofit doing that uh, as well. And also the last thing is really just supporting the, I'm engaged with some award uh, as a jury board, really supporting the scientists, the young scientists to be able to grow very fast at the early stage of their career and to be able to contribute more in the future leverage technology to change the world. Yeah, love it. And, and you know, I know a lot of the work that you do and, and truly grateful for all that because I think we all uh, advance together a lot better with, with diversity and, you know, different viewpoints uh, and look at your journey, right? Your case in point with everything that Thanks. you've done. Good. Well, how can people find uh, more about you? Find out, you know, about your investment thesis, if they want to apply, things like that. Where can they find you? Yeah, my company website will be a good place to check out. So not only have my portfolio and the company team information, we also have a founder hub uh, providing lots of information to help founders get started. We also have our uh, Fusion Insight 
every quarter we do industry research report, we actually have a shorter public version to share with the community and also some information about Saxo Network. So that would be the best uh, place to find out more about myself and also Fusion Fund. Great. All right, Lou. Well, thank you so much. This was a quick session and I really feel like we've got a lot out of it and I really appreciate your time. I look forward to working with you even further. Same here. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Villain Dollar Moves.